You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So the reading today is Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave our country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Uh, brothers and sisters, let's pray as we come to God's word. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious Father, please uh, give me all the help I need uh, this day uh, to proclaim your word faithfully and clearly as I should. And Father, please help all of us uh, to truly hear your word, to hear it rightly, to trust it, uh, to obey it, uh, and to be changed by it uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, when I was a kid, I just loved those choose-your-own-adventure books. Oh, I don't know if you ever read them as well, but I love those books because they gave me such power. You know, you got uh, basically had the freedom to write your own story, a story in which you were the central character of the story. You, you were the hero of the story. Uh, you got to dictate the final destiny of the story. I, I love those books. 
And whether you've heard of those books or not, whether you like those books, I reckon you probably resonate with this idea. This idea, uh, perhaps, that the good life, the illusory good life that we're all searching for, the blessed life, the deeply satisfying life, that life is found to the extent that we have the capacity to write our own story. We long to be the author of our own story. We long to be able to define our own purpose in life. We long to to be the star uh, around whom everyone else is the supporting cast, to to have our name up in lights. We long to be the sun, as it were, around whom everyone and everything else orbits. Our life would just be so much better. We'd find that that uh, illusory good life that we're searching for, uh, if only we were able to write our own story. At least that's what we think. Uh, but in case you, you think I'm painting us all as kind of complete narcissists, uh, I reckon there's also a sense uh, in which we long to play our part in a bigger story. A, a bigger story, to be kind of caught up in a story that, that's far bigger and more glorious than we ever hoped or imagined. Uh, so, for example, for myself, I long to be a part of the story of Melbourne winning a premiership. Uh, some of you say, that, Aaron, no, 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 no that, that's a fairy tale, that's a myth. You know, seriously, I love that that could actually happen in history. It has before, and I long to be caught up in that story. You know, if it happened, of course, I wouldn't be the hero in the story. I understand that. That would be the players on the field. But I would certainly be playing my part in the story, cheering them on every step of the way. Uh, maybe we see a bit of this uh, in the epic books some of us love to read. I was thinking about Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, kind of caught up in the story almost by accident. He's certainly not the hero of the story, is he? He's not Frodo, he's not Gandalf, he's not Aragorn, uh, but he absolutely plays his part in the great story of liberating Middle-earth. Uh, maybe there's even a little bit of this uh, in our current season of COVID-19. Now, many of us feel like we've kind of been thrust into this global battle uh, against this virus. A few of us, if any, are going to be the hero in the story of conquering this virus. Uh, but we're certainly all being called to play our part uh, that we might win. And get back to the good life that we all long for. So which is it? Are we to find the good life in writing our own story, in which we're the central character? Or are we to find the good life in playing our part in a much, much bigger story, in which someone else is the central character? Well, I want to suggest today that it's the latter. We find our good life uh, not in choosing our own adventure, uh, but in getting on board with God's adventure. Not in writing our own story, uh, but in playing our part in a much, much bigger story, in God's story. Uh, So let's get into God's story uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 1. Uh, It's really clear from uh, the start of the book of Exodus, verses 1 to 6, uh, that in coming to the start of Exodus, we're not at the start of God's story. It's like, it's like we're watching part two of a trilogy or, or jumping into to chapter two of a book. And we've kind of got to catch up with what's been happening in chapter one. Uh, so right up front, Moses, uh, who wrote and compiled not just the book of Exodus, but really the, the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, 
Uh, Moses, in the first six verses of Exodus, uh, gives us a whole lot of connections back to chapter one of God's story in Genesis. So let me read first verse one for a start. Uh, Moses says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family. But even in this first verse, uh, there are at least two things that connect back to chapter one of God's story in Genesis. First, uh, the, the original Hebrew of this verse actually starts with the word and. Right, so what we've got here is Moses kind of, you, know, you can imagine him perhaps writing away or kind of getting the book of Genesis together. Uh, and then he goes, and the story continues in the book of Genesis. Oh, we're supposed to read Exodus as a continuation of God's story in Genesis. The second thing here is that that phrase, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went down to Egypt, right? That phrase is identical to Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. Moses is telling us that the story of Exodus is supposed to be read as a continuation of God's story in Genesis. That's why in verses 2 to 5, Moses lists the names of the sons of Jacob. He does that because he wants us to get that here at the start of the book of Exodus, we're being caught up in the story of God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to these sons of Jacob listed in verses 2 to 5. So it's important that we get our head around what those promises are. In fact, if you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful if you could flick back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is God's original promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that promise. God tells Abraham there, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, God says, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You might notice three main aspects to God's promise to Abraham. A first God promises Abraham a people. In fact, he promises to to multiply Abraham's descendants so greatly uh, that they will become a great nation. He promises him a people. Second, uh, he promises him a land. He says, go to the land that I will show you. This is the land of Canaan, right? known throughout the Old Testament uh, as the promised land. Uh, And third, God promises to bless Abraham. This blessing is primarily the blessing of being saved by God and being a part of his people, having the privilege of being with God, of being known and loved by God. That's right at the heart of this blessing. These are the promises that kind of tie together the whole story of chapter 1 of God's story, the book of Genesis. So here at the start of the book of Exodus, we've got some questions. Because Israel is not a great nation. You see here in these opening verses that, uh, that uh, those who went out down to Egypt, were, that there were just 70 of them, uh, plus Joseph and his sons who are already there. Uh, but if you look at verse 6, we're told, uh, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation had now died. 
Oh, so Joseph, right? You remember, he, he's one of the sons of Jacob. He, his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. Uh, but then uh, under God's hand, he uh, elevated, he kind of ultimately ascended to be the prime minister of Egypt, uh, that he might save all of Egypt and all God's people uh, from severe famine. Right? But Joseph died, and all his generation died. So what's the situation at the end of verse 6? The end of verse 6, Israel is not a great nation. Israel is not in the land that God promised them. And there's really no sign of God's blessing upon Israel. So the big question of the book of Exodus is what is God going to do with his promises? How is God going to fulfill his promises? And God starts that work in this chapter, and really in the next verse. In verse 7, God fulfills his promise first by multiplying his people, despite them being in a foreign land. Verse 7, but, this is a turning point in God's story, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, they increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. You see that five words in just this one verse to describe the incredible multiplication of God's people. We're supposed to think of God's promise to Abraham. God is beginning to fulfill his promise of making Abraham's descendants into a great nation, despite them being in a foreign land. And in verses 8 to 14, he continues to fulfill that promise. And now, not only are they in a foreign land, but they're experiencing oppressive slavery. Look at verse 8. You see there that there's a big change in the local political scene in Egypt. We're told that a new king comes to power in Egypt. And notice two things about this king. First, notice that we're not told this king's name. Despite the fact that he's just ascended to be the most powerful ruler on earth, you know, the king of the Egyptian empire, he's not significant enough in God's eyes to be personally named in his story. He's just another king. The second thing to notice about this king is that Joseph means nothing to him. Joseph means nothing to him. You see, until now, despite the fact that the Israelites have been this rapidly multiplying minority group in a foreign land, right? the sort of minority group that a superpower like Egypt would normally have wanted to control and even oppress, right? despite all that, the kings of Egypt have not laid a finger on the Israelites. Why? Well, because of Joseph. The kings of Egypt knew that historically they owed a massive debt to Joseph. So they didn't touch the Israelites. But not this new king. Joseph meant nothing to this king. So all he can see when he sees the Israelites is this rapidly multiplying religious and ethnic minority group that represents a real threat to his people. A threat that must be controlled or even eliminated. So in verse 9, that's what he sets about doing. Look at verse 9. The the, the new king says, Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous 
And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, they will fight against us, and they will leave the country. As I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but feeling like this is a little bit like the fear-based political rhetoric we sometimes hear today. Look, Pharaoh says, look, here's this rapidly multiplying minority group. Oh, we've got to do something about them. Right, can't you see how quickly they're growing? You know, let, let, me, let me show you the, the popula- population graphs of their growth over the past few years. Let, let, let me let you in on all the positions of influence they're starting to hold in our society. Oh, we've, got to ha- we've got to have a wise plan, a strategic and shrewd plan to manage this minority group so that we can continue enjoying the economic benefits of them being in our country. Oh, we don't want to let go of that. But we also want to make sure they don't grow too fast and they don't gain too much control or influence. So from verse 11, we see the first stage of Pharaoh's plan, his shrewd plan. Look at verse 11. So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Uh, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Right? So the, the first stage of the plan is to enslave the Israelites uh, and force them to, to labor on Egypt's latest construction projects. Right, we know from down in verse 14 uh, that predominantly the Israelites were doing the hard yards of making bricks for those projects. So let's just pause here for a second. Uh, if you were reading Exodus chapter 1 and you got to this point... Uh, Surely you'd be forgiven for thinking that Pharaoh is the main character in this story. But Pharaoh is the one who's dictating the terms of this story. He's the author of the story. Uh, After all, what's God doing when his people are being enslaved and oppressed? What's God doing? Verse 12. This is what God's doing. But, again, a turning point. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The the more the Egyptians tried to squash the Israelites, uh, the more God enabled his people uh, to multiply and spread uh, and fill the earth. So in verses 13 and 14, the the Egyptians made their, their enslavement of the Israelites even more ruthless. And we're told there at the end of verse 12, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Maybe you're starting to see what God's doing here. He's multiplied his people despite them being in a foreign land. He's multiplied his people despite them experiencing oppressive slavery. And in verses 15 to 17, he's going to multiply his people despite them experiencing this secret plan of genocide. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, whose names were Shipra and Pua. 
Now, I don't want to talk about the Hebrew too much, right? But I think it's worth noting that a slightly more kind of wooden translation of this verse uh, would read like this. Uh, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, one of whom was named Shipra, uh, and the other of whom was named Pua. I think, I think this translation helps us in at least two ways. First, it makes it clearer uh, that Shipra and Pua are really just two of the Hebrew midwives. So probably the chief midwives, which is important if you are somehow wondering how is it that two midwives are able to oversee such incredible population growth. Surely they're not able to get around to all those delivery rooms. But these are just two of the midwives, the chief midwives. The second way in which this is helpful, this translation, is that it shows us that rather than just kind of skipping over the names of these midwives, kind of mentioning them in passing, Moses slows down deliberately. He slows down because he wants us to dwell on these midwives. And notice that he names these midwives personally. Unlike Pharaoh back in verse 8. These midwives, in contrast to Pharaoh, are significant players in God's story. So he ensures that they're here in our Bibles to this day, so that we would honour them as heroes of our faith. You see the contrast here in chapter 1. Pharaoh wants to make his name great, to glorify his name. Uh, so he intends to, to use Shipra and Pua uh, as like nameless pawns uh, in his plan to destroy God's people. In contrast, Shipra and Pua want to make their God's name great. Right? They, they want to glorify his name. Uh, so God is going to use Pharaoh as like a nameless pawn uh, in his plan to bless his people. So Pharaoh summons these Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, into his courts, and he says to them, verse 16, When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. It's just horrible, isn't it? Imagine the conversation that Shipper and Pua would have been having as they left Pharaoh's courts. Right? They know that every child is precious to God. And that God would never want them to, de to destroy the lives of these Hebrew, ba Hebrew baby boys. They know that. On the other hand, Pharaoh is the most powerful ruler on earth. Right? Humanly speaking, he holds their lives in his hands. And here he is pressuring them to carry out this secret plan of genocide on their very own people, on God's people. But what are they going to do? Oh, well, verse 17. But these women, are these midwives, feared God. And so they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Right? They feared God. And that's not to say that they lived in terror of God. It is to say that they had the utmost respect for God. And they revered God. That they lived their lives in awe of God. 
And despite the fact that, that when Shipper and Pua were in, were in Pharaoh's courts, no doubt he, he seemed very big in their lives. He, he loomed large in their vision. Despite that, Shipper and Pua knew that their God was bigger and that he sits on his heavenly throne and that is far more glorious and, uh, and spectacular than Pharaoh's courts. And despite the fact that the Pharaoh considered himself to, to be the king over all creation, Shipper and Pua knew that it was their God who was king over all creation. Despite the fact that Pharaoh considered himself to be the author of all of human history, so that everyone else should just play their part in his story, Shipper and Pua knew that it was their God who was the author of human history. So their job, uh, even, in the, even in the face of intense opposition and suffering, uh, was to humbly play their part in his story. And now clearly between verses 17 and 18, uh, enough time's gone by for Pharaoh to realise that the, the Hebrew midwives aren't carrying out his plan. Uh, so he summons them to his courts again, verse 18. Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys leave? You see, Pharaoh saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know you should fear me? Don't you know that I'm at the centre of this story? You're just in the supporting cast. So Shipper and Pruagir give him the answer that they've no doubt been rehearsing for some time. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, but Hebrew midwives aren't like Egyptian women. Hebrew women, rather, aren't like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now this is a little bit confusing. I wonder what you think. Do you think that Shipra and Pua lied to Pharaoh here? And does that mean that it's not always wrong to lie? And does it mean that the God will sometimes even bless us if we lie? Well, I don't, I don't actually think Shipper and Pua lied here. Right? Sure, they may have left out some convenient parts of the truth, but I don't think they lied here. Uh, it really all hinges uh, on the meaning of that word vigorous. And it's a little bit tricky because this is the only time this word occurs in the Old Testament. Uh, but most, um, most kind of experts agree that the word probably means uh, simply uh, lively or active or, or maybe even involved. So let me, I'll tell you what I think happens here. It's a little bit speculative. Uh, not all the details are in the text, but I think it fits with the text. What I think happened uh, is that Shipra and Pua, on leaving Pharaoh's courts the first time, they knew something that Pharaoh didn't know. They knew that Egyptian women laboured differently to Hebrew women, right? That they're experienced midwives. Uh, Egyptian women uh, were more passive in their labour. Right, as passive as you can be in labour, far be it for me to comment on that on this Mother's Day, but you know, Egyptian women by and large were more passive in their labour. Right? They would have laid back uh, on their beds and called the midwife in very early in the labour uh, to progress the labour. This is why Pharaoh thought it would be very easy for the Hebrew midwives to carry out, carry out his plan of genocide. Right? They'd have hours of opportunity to do something to kill the Hebrew baby boy. But what Pharaoh didn't understand, what he didn't count on, was that Egyptian women aren't like Hebrew women. They're different. Hebrew women were very active, very vigorous, very lively in their labour. 
slaving away in the field, right up to the point of birth, only calling the midwife in at the very last minute. Shipper and Pua knew this, that this cultural difference between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. And now, sure, I've got no doubt that they spread the word amongst pregnant women in Israel, uh, please don't call us into the delivery room until your baby's already born. I've got no doubt they did that. And they left that bit out when they were speaking to Pharaoh. But what they actually said to Pharaoh was true. Egyptian, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. Oh, I think Shipper and Pua here are a great example of what Jesus encourages his disciples to be like. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, you can look it up later on, but Jesus says when you're hauled before kings and governors, you've got to be as shrewd as snakes. That's Shipper and Pua here. They are as shrewd as snakes. And that ties together the chapter, doesn't it? Because we see that Pharaoh's shrewd plan is no match for the shrewdness of these midwives. So how does God treat these women? These women who, even in the face of intense opposition and suffering, continue to act in godly fear. Well, he works for their good, as he always does with his people. Look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives. Literally, he was good to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. God used these women who acted in godly fear, who who probably had no real idea what the consequences of their actions would be. But God used them to continue fulfilling his promises to his people, to multiply them, to increase them in number, to make them a great nation. And in verse 21, well, we see that the, the midwives themselves got to share in the blessing of that promise. Moses says in verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. This is God's incredible goodness to these women. They'd risen to the status of chief midwives, that they were probably quite old and childless, despite overseeing the births of hundreds of thousands of children. And so here, God is good to them, and he gives them children of their own. This is the message, brothers and sisters. Keep fearing God. Keep trusting God. Keep obeying God. Because even in times of opposition and suffering, God is at work to fulfill his promises to his people, which are always for their good, for our good as his people. But Pharaoh hasn't given up. Uh, So he switches gears from his secret plan of genocide to his public plan of genocide. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave his orders to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is no private order to the Hebrew midwives. It's a public order to all his people. It's state-sponsored genocide with the express intention of destroying God's people. So at the end of Exodus chapter 1, where we're still thinking, well, sure, 
Sure, it's good of God to multiply his people, right? It's nice of him to fulfill that part of his promise to Abraham. But what good is that if you're in a foreign land experiencing slavery and state-sponsored genocide? There's not a lot of blessing in that. How is God going to free his people from Egypt and bring them into the promised land? How is he going to enable them to enjoy the blessing of being with him as his people, of being known and loved by him? How's all that going to happen? Well, that's for the rest of God's story. For today, let's consider this particular chapter of God's story, Exodus chapter 1. I reckon this chapter is really quite engaging. It's an interesting story. I remember it from Sunday school. It's engaging, but but it also seems it seems a little ancient, a little remote, and perhaps a little distant. Or we might even be led to thinking, uh, did this actually happen, uh, and is it really relevant? And the answer to that is yes, it did happen. It actually happened in history, and it's relevant because this is the story of God's actions in history uh, that continue to this day. It's a story that you can be a part of even this day uh, through faith in Christ. Well, some of you have already done that. You've put your faith in Christ. Uh, and we need to put our faith in Christ because Christ uh, is the ultimate descendant of Abraham. Right? It's Christ. It's through Christ uh, that the blessings that God promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 uh, are made available to all peoples on earth including you, are just as God promised. Of course, living in the particular chapter of God's story that we live in, right after Jesus, God's promises to us do look a little bit different. So, for example, God still promises to multiply us as his people, just as he did to the, uh, to the Israelites in Egypt. But he doesn't promise to multiply us so much by helping us to make babies, uh, but by helping us to make disciples. Uh, so in Matthew's Gospel, for example, in Matthew 16, verse 18, God says, I will build, or Jesus says, I will build my church. And I'll multiply my people. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it, Jesus says. So, so just as Pharaoh's evil power in Exodus chapter 1 wasn't able to stop God growing his people, so also no evil power today will be able to stop God growing his people, building his church. His church that he builds, uh, we know from Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20, are by sending us out to people of every nation to make disciples of every nation. Uh, so that followers of Jesus, think Exodus 1, followers of Jesus multiply and spread and fill the earth. Uh, until ultimately, Revelation 7 verse 9, disciples of Jesus are a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe and language and tongue. Right? Just as God promised to Abraham, God said to Abraham, look to the stars. One day your, your disciples, your, your descendants will be a great multitude that no one can count. Right? God still promises to multiply his people. That's the good that God's working towards uh, for us as his people. Oh, well, what, what's, the, what's another good that he's working towards in our lives now? Uh, clearly it's not that we'll all have babies like Shipper and Pua. It's not that we'll all be completely healthy or, or completely happy. 
but it is that he'll that we'll all be completely holy. God promises to make us holy like his son. Romans 8 verse 28, he, I, Paul says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good. He's kind. He works for the good of those who love him. Well, what's this good? Well, verse 29, the good is that God will conform us to the image of his son. And this is the good that God promises to us as his people. He's going to use everything in our lives, everything in your life, the good things, the bad things, the ugly things, to make you more like his son, to make you holy like his son. And to ultimately remove from your life any stain or wrinkle or blemish. That's the good God's working towards in your life. He's doing that now. Well, what about the ultimate good, the eternal good? Or that good is that that great multitude of disciples uh, who've been made holy like Christ God's Son uh, will enjoy the blessing of being with God, of being known and loved by God, uh, the blessing that God promised to Abraham. But not being with God in the particular land of Canaan, uh, but being with God in the new heavens and new earth that God's promised us. So in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5, John says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. We will be with God, and we'll know the blessing of being with him. We'll be so close to him that John says he'll be able to wipe away every tear from our eye before there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. In that moment, any suffering or opposition that you've experienced in this life, right? Some simply because you've chosen to keep trusting and obeying and fearing God like Shipper and Pua, all of that uh, will seem like nothing because you are finally with God, being known and loved by God. That's the eternal good that God promises to those who put their faith in Christ. God promises to multiply us, to make us holy like his son. He promises that one day we'll be with him and he'll wipe away our every tear. I see, I don't know which story you long to be a part of. Maybe you'd love to be caught up in the Lord of the Rings or the Marvel Universe or the world of Octonauts or Pokemon or whatever else it is, right? But whatever story it is, uh, let me say, it, it pales in comparison to this story. Right? Because in the end, this is the story that God made you for. He made you uh, to find that the uh, illusory good life that you've always longed for, the blessed life, the deeply satisfying life, in being caught up in this story through faith in Christ. And now I understand, uh, it's maybe a bit of a tough pill to swallow, that you're not the main character in this story. Right? God is. It's his story. Uh, but if you can humbly accept that, right? humbly uh, keep fearing and trusting and obeying God uh, as Shipra and Pua did in Exodus 1, if you can do that, uh, then you can have this deep assurance uh, that even in times of intense opposition and suffering, uh, God is at work to fulfill his promises to you, uh, which are always for your ultimate good. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this deep assurance.
uh, that we can be a part of your people through faith in Christ uh, and be caught up in the wonderful story of your promises to Abraham. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you promised to multiply us as your people, uh, that we might uh, multiply and spread and fill the earth. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you promised to make us holy like your Son uh, through everything that we experience in life. Uh, And we thank you, Father, for the ultimate good that we can look forward to, uh, that one day we'll we'll enjoy the blessing of being with you uh, and of uh, of being known and loved by you and being comforted by you. Oh, Father, we look forward to this great good. And we pray that in the meantime, that you would help us to keep fearing and trusting and obeying you. In Jesus' name, amen.